Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's truth and life and it teaches us all about Jesus. Uh, please today help us to see Christ in this ch- these chapters of your word. Please speak into our lives truth that we might know you better for his name's sake. Amen. Now, I don't know uh, if you're a regular here, but we've been doing a Just Start Talking course in our small groups to help us talk about the Lord Jesus. I found it really helpful. And this week, I got into a conversation with a bloke about issues to do with God. And he actually said, look, I don't have a problem in believing in Jesus and his death and his resurrection. There's too much historical evidence to doubt that. But, but what about kids who are born with, with illnesses, terrible illnesses? And what about wars in the world? And and what about suffering that I experience? Those are great questions, aren't they? I guess a lot of us are asking those sort of questions on a regular basis. Often Christians are. You see, in one way, it's easier for us to accept that God is at work in the big things, the, the events of the Bible, those massive things we have recorded, the Exodus, the coming of Jesus, miracles. It's easy sometimes to accept that God's work in the good things, when life is going well, when hundreds of people are coming to know Jesus, maybe when our health is good and the kids are doing well at school and family seems to be going okay. But, but over the last two weeks in the book of Esther, we've come face to face with the God who's at work in everything. Though he's not mentioned throughout this book, behind it all, in every detail is the hidden hand of God. And we saw last week, the New Testament, Paul in Romans chapter 8, says this famously about God's work. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his good purpose. In all things. In all things? We might say, amen to that, but do we really believe in all things? Through the person who you end up sitting next to on the train? Through that, through that traffic jam that does your head in when you're trying to get to work in the morning? Through, through that illness that's dragging you down and just not letting you serve at church in the way you'd like? Through the marriage that just seems to be a, a set of battles with very few emotional victories? God is working in all things? See, Esther has shown us that God works through the mess of our world. The God who runs every empire and rules every country. And we're in uh, 480 BC. And and let me just summarize what we've seen previously in the book of Esther. We've seen a young Jewish girl who's an orphan end up in the harem of the Persian king. She's become number one wife, Queen Esther. She's got a concerned cousin called Mordecai who's brought her up. Mordecai has overheard a plot to assassinate King Xerxes. He tells the king, and the result is Xerxes is saved. But instead of Mordecai being rewarded, the very next thing we heard was that Jew-hater Haman has been made prime minister. It doesn't take Haman long to get in a huff with Mordecai when he refuses to bow to his ego. But rather than just disposing of the irritating Mordecai, Haman, megalomaniac that he is, decides to rid the world of the Jewish people once and for all, to wipe them off the face of the planet. It only takes a a bit of buttering up and a huge cash bung paid to weak-willed Xerxes, and Xerxes signs the death warrant, not having a clue 
who he's killing. Mordecai responds in repentance. We saw that last week. He puts on sackcloth and ashes, and basically he stands there before God, admitting his desperate situation. And he calls on Esther to use her position to beg for mercy for her people. The problem is Esther says, look, you just can't waltz into the presence of the king unless he asks you. People have been killed for doing that. And anyway, I just don't think he fancies me much anymore. We've not done it for the last 30 days. He's having it off with some other girls. To to which Mordecai replied in chapter 4 and verse 13. Let me read that to you. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you're alone of all the Jews who will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but you have come to this your royal position for such a time as this. Do you see what he's saying? Esther, God will save his people. That's what he's doing in the world. Maybe he's put you there for this purpose. Now, either you get with the program or you're going to perish. And so we ended last week with Esther deciding to go. And so far, the story's been a bit of a slow burner. We've actually worked through nine years of history in the first four chapters. But now, in 48 hours, in two episodes of 24, the whole world is turned upside down. Everything changes. And so as not to wreck the tension, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to work through the chapters to to look at the drama unfolding, and then briefly at the end, see, well, how does this apply to us today? Have a look at chapter 5 and verse 1 again. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne facing the entrance. Things, by the way, tend to happen on the third day in the Bible. Life-changing events occur, men rise from the dead, a young queen risks her life. What's going to happen? Well, verse 2, when he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Phew, first hurdle crossed. She's not been killed. Now, beg for mercy. Verse 3, Then the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. He doesn't really mean up to half the kingdom. I mean, that's just what you say if you're ruler of the known world. You just say things like, even up to half the kingdom. What he really means is, hi, Esther, I'm feeling friendly today. Try me. And so what Esther does is try him in verse 4. If it pleases the king, let the king, together with Haman, Come today to a banquet I prepared for him. Now, Esther knows that the way to a man's heart is through his stomach, and Haman doesn't seem to be bothered about being the spare part in this romantic tete-a-tete. And Xerxes' banquets, we've already seen in the book of Esther, seem to be largely of the liquid kind. They're more sort of bunga-bunga party than church buffet. And we all know what Xerxes is like when he gets a few drinks down him. Basically, he's anyone's. And sure enough, just as the first bottle of Merlot is being finished, Xerxes asks again at the end of verse 6, Now what is your petition? It will be given to you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be granted. And we're thinking, now Esther, now's the time to beg for mercy. But instead Esther says, Oh, won't you come to another dinner party for three tomorrow night? We don't know why. 
Maybe it's that the more that Xerxes offers to give her her request, the harder it's going to be for him to pull out without losing face at the end of the process. But we don't know. Haman totters off back home, happy as Larry. The problem is then he bumps into Mordecai in verse 9. Haman went out that day happy and high in spirits. We probably know what sort of spirits he was high in. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. See, Mordecai is a man of principle. He won't bow down to someone who wants to destroy God's people. He knows fully the consequences of not looking up from his laptop when the boss comes into the office. And Haman hates him for it. Because Haman, he's not just content to be powerful. No, he wants everyone to look up to him. He wants everyone to praise him. He wants everyone to fear him. See, Haman's universe firmly has him at the center of it. But but he just manages to restrain himself, and he makes it home. And we pick up in verse 10, calling together his wife and his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him, and how he'd elevated him above all the other nobles and officials. Haman must have been a terrible bore, mustn't he? I mean, he's the sort of bloke who can only talk about himself. I mean, Haman would never have asked you, well, what's your day at work been? like or or, you know what 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 are your interests and hobbies and and even if he had asked you that once you got about halfway through the first sentence he'd have interrupted you and started telling you about how his important work or his interests and hobbies were so much bigger and and better than yours i I love verse 12 it's just so typical look at verse 12 with me and that's not all said Haman. You know, people who say that, and that's not all. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave, and she's invited me along with the king tomorrow. Verse 13. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. We live enslaved by comparison. You see, we, we can be content with our lives until we feel someone else's is better. You know, we quite like our house until we visit our friend's house and it's just so much nicer than ours. C.S. Lewis, the Christian writer, put the nail on the head when he said, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer, cleverer, or better looking than others. If everyone became equally rich or clever or good looking, there'd be nothing to be proud about. The writer Gore Vidal was a little more cynical when he said this, every time a friend succeeds, something inside me dies. Do you know that feeling? Someone shares their good news with you, and you're just trying to rejoice, but part of you is thinking, why not me? Haman would have been a nightmare with Facebook. He'd have, been, he'd have been constantly comparing himself to others. Have they got more likes? Do they look more thinner than me? Are they looking younger than me or older than me? Oh, are there kids at a better university than mine is at? Is their job more interesting than mine? Their holidays more fun? Are they more important than I am? I mean, if Haman had Facebook, in my imagine he'd be wanting to impale people all over the world. 
See, because once he thought someone was better than him, he was miserable. And miserable megalomaniacs are not much fun. Don't worry, says his wife and his chums. Why not uh, have a, a 75 foot, that's 25 meters for those born after 1980, 75 foot stake set up in the front lawn. And uh, tomorrow you can go and ask the king and say, can I stick Mordecai on it? And if he says yes, you can go off to the banquet and relax. You'll be much happier then. They're quite a couple, aren't they, Mr. and Mrs. Heyman? So Heyman, he goes to bed, he, he sleeps like a baby, dreaming of Mordecai's mutilated corpse dangling above the rest of the houses in the street, everyone looking at it. And we're thinking, oh no, Esther! Esther, why didn't you ask Xerxes the question? Why did you, why did you have to take him to dinner for another night? I mean, it's, it's all going to be too late. Mordecai's going to get skewered, and you're going to be serving Xerxes and Haman kebabs, and it's going to be too late for him. But not everyone sleeps well that night. Chapter 6 and verse 1. That night the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. And this is the heart of Esther. It's literally the, the turning point in the middle of the book. It's a set of little events that change everything in the known world in 480 BC. A set of little events by which God saves his people. A set of God incidences. See, it just so happens King Xerxes can't sleep. And rather than taking a pill or putting on the TV, it just so happens he fancies a bedtime story. And if you're an emperor, what's the best sort of bedtime story? It's a book that's all about you. The chronicles of your reign and how great you are. And so that's what he asked for. And it just so happens that, that when the royal reader sits beside his bed, because you can't be bothered to read if you're emperor of the known world, when the royal reader sits behind beside his bed and says, where shall I read from tonight, sire? He says, oh, I don't, I don't care really, you choose. And it just so happens that the royal reader turns to the page which discusses and reveals that Mordecai the Jew saved the life of Xerxes the king. And so, verse 3, what honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Persian kings loved a bit of honoring, especially keeping the subjects happy. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. We must do something. What shall we do? What can we do? What, what can, can, is, there anyone, is there anyone around who can tell me what to do? Xerxes rules 127 provinces but he can't even think up a decent thank you present. Actually, probably a lot of blokes like that, but that's another story. He can't think of a decent thank you present. He needs some help. So, fortunately, we read in verse 4, the king said, who is in the court? Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he set up for him. He's just, he's just walking in, happily humming a little ditty, you know. I'm going to impale him on a big stake at 75 feet. I'm going to impale him on a big stake at 75 feet. He's wonderfully happy, Haman, and, and a servant approaches him and says, the king needs your help. And Haman thinks, yes, I bet he does. I'm on my way. Haman's joy only increases when he, when he hears Xerxes' question. Verse 6, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now, just let me think, um, who, is, who is it the king might want to honor? I mean, who is top dog around here? That'd be me. That's me. Ah, oh, Haman, the whole of his life revolves around himself. He can't even think outside his own feelings. 
He, he, he feels his life is what sort of day he's had, how other people have made him feel, whether he's got his own way or not, how many traffic lights have been green. He's king of his own little world. And so he says to Xerxes, treat him like king. That's what he says in verse 7, isn't it? Now, for the man the king delights to honor, let them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden on it, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Treat him like a king. Let him fly in Air Force One. Let him appear on the balcony of Buckingham Palace with Her Majesty. Let Prince William and Prince Harry do one of those fly-on-the-wall documentaries just saying, what a good bloke he is. Why not give him an open-top bus parade through Sousa, the capital? Just do whatever makes him feel great. Now, do you know, there's, there's a little bit more of Haman in all of us than we'd like to admit, isn't there? Certainly a little bit more of him and me. I'm feeling quite good about myself this morning. Lots of you have turned up for my talk. Well done, me. Aren't I great? Pastor Daff. We just think the world revolves around us. We want people to praise us. Oh, I do like a bit of praise. I'll be in the Arson Lounge afterwards. <laughs> we like people to make us feel good about ourselves. Special, loved. Actually, from the, from the beginning of the Bible, we've believed the devil's lie, which is this. Look, don't worry about God. It's all about you. No, no, really. No, really. It's, it's all about you. Just do what you want. It's about how you're treated in the way that you deserve. How special you are. It's packaged in our culture. It's about self-affirmation and self-worth. We, we bind to it even as Christians. We, we keep going around saying, look, you just need to know how precious you are to God. And you are precious to God because, well, not because of you. See, that's Haman. It's all about me, says Haman. And then the bottom drops out of his world. Verse 10. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. Absolutely everything. Don't miss anything at all. All for Mordecai the Jew. Clearly, Xerxes hasn't got a clue. He's just ordered the extermination of this people. Can, can you imagine how Haman felt? He has, he's to get the royal robe and, and put it on a Mordecai. I wonder if Mordecai bothered to stand up for that section. And then he sticks him in a horse, and he has to parade throughout the streets. Can you imagine Haman in front of the horse? This is what is done for those who the king likes to honor. There wouldn't have been a lot of sort of, I feel, feeling, gusto in his voice. I don't imagine he was, he was really particularly happy about what he was doing. At the end of it, Mordecai goes back to the office, and Haman, he rushes back home, and he gets the question, how is your breakfast meeting, dear? And he says, just don't ask. Look what Zeresh and friends say in verse 13. His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. If he's one of God's people, they say, you're going to lose. If you've got God on your side, you're going to win. Well, thanks very much, wife. I mean, you could have mentioned that last night. 
It's all good and proper giving me your I told you so thing now. No, you didn't tell me. I remember our conversation being very different last night. Something about getting him stuck on a pole. But before Haman can finish, verse 14, while they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. Haman the haughty is suddenly being hurried around by a bunch of servants. I expect he sort of played with this food when he sat down at first. He probably got stuck into the drink, so you can see him saying to the servant, fill it up, and again. He might not even been listening much to the next conversation when Xerxes asks Esther again, what is it that you want? What can I give you up to half my kingdom? But I guarantee you he started to listen when Esther's answer came. Chapter 7 and verse 3. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition and spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold and to be destroyed, killed and annihilated. If we'd merely been sold as male and female slaves, I'd have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. They're her people, my people. I'm one of those people. I'm, I'm one of God's people, says Esther. I mean, I wouldn't have troubled your majesty if we were just going to be sold into slavery. But we've been sold to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. It's an exact quote from Haman's decree in chapter 3. And Haman's plot is unraveling. He's with the queen and the king, and he's responsible for ordering the death sentence of the queen. Verse 5. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Who is he? Where is he? The man who has dared to do such a thing. And Esther said, an adversary and an enemy, this vile Haman, this hateful, hostile man. Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. Haman Haman bursts through the French doors out onto the patio. Perhaps he's realized that he's the one who took Haman's Uh, So King Xerxes bursts out the French doors onto the patio. Perhaps he's realized he's the one who took Haman's money and sold his wife to death. But perhaps he can't work out how to resolve the situation without dishonor. Haman's thinking, I'm a dead man. My only hope is to beg for my life with Queen Esther. But, But things go from very bad to even worse for him. As he rushes to fall on his knees before Esther, he trips over a rug, this being Persia and all, and he ends up falling right on top of her on the couch, hands all over her. And just just because it's like a bad Ealing comedy, some sort of black comedy, just as that moment as Haman's going, way onto Esther, in comes King Xerxes through the door. He sees all he needs to see. Here's an excuse to get rid of him. Look at verse 8. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she's with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. That that could be the words cover his face, or the servants put a bag over his head so he can be led away to be executed. You, You get an idea for how other people feel about Haman, when Harbona, one of the king's servants, chips in with a suggestion. Don't know if this is relevant at at the moment, Your Majesty, or it'll be any use to you. 
But, the, but there just so happens to be a 75-foot stake in, uh, in Heyman's front garden, which he, uh, he set up to impale Mordecai on. You might remember Mordecai. He's the one who saved your life. It's just there. If it's any good to you. And so, verse 9, the king said, impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole and set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. And in the pantomime of life, we go, hooray! Just as every time Haman has wandered in before, we've gone, boo! There's something wild within us, isn't it? We think, justice! That's it, he's got his comeuppance. Happens every time we watch a, a Marvel film or something like that. Yes! The baddie's got it. But the problem is that, that over the last two weeks, we've seen that the Mordecai and Esther aren't actually that innocent. Yeah, they might not be as bad as Haman, but they're the people of God. And according to God's law, their behavior has been, well, at best ropey, at worst, totally disobedient. I mean, what is a good Christian girl doing working in a harem anyway? And how come her guardian said to her, I oh, just don't mention church, and certainly don't say anything about that following Jesus bit, just quietly get on and have sex with the king if that makes him happy. Keep your head down. I mean, why are they rescued? And that's where we see how this applies to us. Because you see, Mordor and Esther are our spiritual ancestors. They were the, the covenant people of God, the Jews in the Old Testament. And the New Testament teaches us that Jesus has fulfilled all of God's promises, his covenant promises. And so that the covenant people of God today are Christians, both Jew and non-Jew Gentile, together under King Jesus. And Esther, therefore, is a book about us. But it's not a book to show us how to live. No, it's a book to remind us of three vital things. Here's the first thing. The sovereign God saves his people. The sovereign God saves his people. And sovereign means that God rules over every tiny detail of our lives, from global wars to general elections, from the bedtime story you choose to read your child to the old friend you happen to bump into in Oxford Street you've not seen for 20 years. God rules over every tiny detail of our lives. Now, that doesn't mean we're not responsible for our decisions. I mean, Esther presents us with real people getting themselves into a real mess. But our God is so powerful that he works through the chaos and the pain and the suffering. He works through our total lack of control and the real mess of our lives. He even works through evil to rescue his people. Oh, we see that recorded by the Apostle Peter as he, he preaches in Acts chapter 2, talking about the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says this in Acts 2.23, This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Oh, this was all planned by God. A kiss to betray him in a midnight garden. A set of leaders who just got so angry with the king of love and his rather quality teaching. All planned by God and ordered. Utterly the heart of history according to God's plan. And yet, you did it with the help of wicked men. You're responsible, says Peter. Both are true. And it's actually at the foot of the cross that we see what we're really like. You see, our sovereign God 
is saving his people. But secondly, our sovereign God brings people down to size. See, what marks Haman out is the size of his ego, isn't it? He's a man who appears to have it all. And what marks Esther out is that though she is queen, she is willing to act with total humility. She's willing to to risk her life for the sake of her people. That's what marks Mordecai out. He's willing to sit there in sackcloth and ashes, to look ridiculous in front of everyone, to be humble before his God. And Jesus tells us that the humble will be exalted and the exalted will be humbled. See, the promise of the Bible is that one day, the day when everyone stands before the Lord Jesus as their judge, The attitudes and actions of the world will be turned upside down. They'll be turned on their head. Can you imagine standing before Jesus, the the maker of heaven and earth, on the last day and saying, have you seen my A-level certificate? Did you know how many people followed me on Instagram? Look at my new kitchen. It will all be totally irrelevant. Those things that the world exalts, They'll be meaningless before Jesus. And those that have humbled themselves and trusted God, those who have said, I can do nothing to help myself and I need God to rescue me, that they'll be exalted, raised up. So if you've come this morning and you're thinking, God's not interested in my life and my life is a mess. If you're thinking, I'm a nobody and I desperately want to be a somebody, well, you are a somebody. Not by your own efforts, not by you achieving according to the world's standards. No, because there is a God who loves you in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the third thing. And this is the vital third thing we need to see. The sovereign God has humbled himself so that we might be exalted. See, what a difference two days make in the book of Esther, don't they? 48 hours and the world of the Persian empires flipped on its head. Uh, People who deserve to die are rescued. A prime minister is judged. And we're going to see next week uh, a a humble servant, Mordecai, becomes prime minister. But that reversal was nothing compared to the reversal that God achieved 2,000 years ago in three hours outside Jerusalem. Three hours that can turn your life upside down. Three hours that smash the comparison game that so often leaves us miserable day to day. Because out of his great love, the ruler of the universe, the king of kings, the lord of lords, came to, chose to take on flesh. The son of God became man. And he took on that flesh so that he could be physically nailed to a stake. To a cross. And there he, he defeated the devil, the, the one the Bible calls the evil one, the one Jesus calls the prince of this world, the one who sold us the lie. It's all about you. Do your best, try hard. The harder you try, the more you achieve, the better you can feel about yourself. And if you're a loser, unlucky. The devil was defeated so that we can now live in freedom the freedom of of the love of God to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We can do that because Jesus humbled himself to death, death on a cross, because he died there not for his pride, but for ours. Not for his selfishness, but for ours. Not for his anger, but for ours. 
Not for his self-love, but for ours. Not for his cruelty, but for ours. He died our death. He bore our sin. And in that, he declared most perfectly into the eternity of the cosmos, God is for his people, whatever they're like, whoever they are, however much they've failed, however much they've hated him, and however much they've hurt each other, God is for his people. And he will bring them home. He will rescue them. Because he loves them. And having risen from the dead, God exalted Jesus to the highest place. It's actually a place even higher than Mordecai is going to receive next week. Because we're going to see in Esther next week, the crisis is over, isn't it? Haman has, has died, but the problem is there's still a death sentence lingering over the Jews. They're not safe yet. And that's a bit like our life, isn't it? At the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, we see that God is for us. He loves us. And he, as Jesus was raised from the dead, we know we're going to be with him forever. One day in a perfect new home. But sometimes that doesn't make tomorrow that much easier. It doesn't, doesn't really seem to change the fact that I'm still struggling in that relationship or with that illness or in that lousy job tomorrow morning. So, so how, how do we keep going? How do we do it? Well, we look back to that day where God in all his sovereignty came and in the person of Christ died for us. The day when he defeated our enemies. The day when he declared his love for us once and for all. The day that means we know he is for us. And that means that we look forward to the day when we know all the suffering will stop and all the pain will end. And today, well, we can keep going. Because if God so ordered the universe then for us, he is ordering our lives day by day to take us home to be with him. If he has given up his own son for us, then he is working in all the mess and the intricacy to take us home to be with him. That's what we're going to see in Esther as we end next week. There is a glorious future, and it's certain. Certain because the sovereign God humbled himself so that you, so that I, can be exalted to be with him. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we, we marvel that you so ordered history, that you entered it in the person of your son, that it just so happened that a descendant of David was born in a stable in the city of David in Bethlehem. It just so happened that he came from the north, from Nazareth, the place where you said light would come from into the dark world. It just so happened that he went to a trial and suffered like the suffering servant you promised 700 years before. It just so happened that he bore our punishment in his body on the tree. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much that you ordered history to do that for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to trust you that you're ordering our history today, tomorrow, and every day so that you will take us home, you will exalt us, you will raise us up.
to be in glory with our Lord Jesus forever. Help us to trust that, our Father, for his name's sake. Amen.